All right, cool. I'm ready now. Whoop, whoop. Oh, I can do the music. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> Good evening, Meat Suits. Welcome back to Read It and Weep. The only thing that's slow jam royalty-free music could indicate it means it's time for the podcast uh we're a podcast that used to be about books i'm your host alex falcone recording from my apartment in north koreatown los angeles and a brief personal note before we get started i just want to say i know if you've been like watching around if you follow any comics on twitter um there's been a lot of efforts at increasing the web-based content that people are doing and i am no exception uh, in addition to doing some fun streaming with my buddies here, uh, so two things that I want to tell you about really quick if you're interested in getting a little bit more of my voice. One is that uh, Hunter and Anthony and I did a little uh, little Twitch stream last Ooh, week. Yeah. We, I, I, Anthony and I watched Hunter play video games, and then people watched us watch him play video games, which is pretty deep down a rabbit hole for me, but I had a very good time, and I've spent several days wondering what else is in those murky depths. So, I can't yeah, wait to get I'm back in and watch you swim it, around. So, yeah, that'll definitely happen soon. Mm-hmm. We'll do it again. It was fun. Anthony, did you have a good time? I did. I had a very good time. I uh, It's nice being on the different side of the parasocial Twitch relationship for once. <laughs> you know? Well, it was super... My favorite thing is just the, is the chat. And uh, we just had very nice people in the chat. We had one of the developers of the video game in the chat. And we just... They were very funny. Yeah, and I had a very good time hanging out with them. I everybody. have a lot of experience being the uh, in the chat, not the chatter. But yeah, I was the chatter, not in the chat. It was nice. It's also fun how quickly it turned sort of uh, aggressive, where I was heckling you as if I knew what was supposed to be happening all along. Yeah, I like that dynamic, because I think it has a different energy than what we get out of this show, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We so really we'll need do- to get Alex on the couch as like an awesome games, games done quick. Yeah. Uh, just people at the top tier of certain video games speed running it. And Alex just being like, I don't know if that's the way you're going to... Really I would do it. So, yes, I would I would NPC clip to the other guy. Oh, what? Is that supposed to be a frame-perfect move? I could have done it. <laughs> it's definitely what I would say. Um, or my, I think my insights were more like, is that shell farting? But, yeah, there's a lot of good insight that we can have. <laughs> so we'll do more video game playing. The other thing is that I am doing um, just the worst version of a late-night show, a late-night talk show. Um with my buddy Curtis Cook, who's a friend of the show. So we are doing a, a very dark, filthy, uh, uh, recorded t- t- weekly talk show called "End Is The End Is Night. And uh, the end is night. Get it? Like a talk show, but like, mm-hmm. you know, but sad. Um, anyway, it's the really the target audience is very few people. So you'd have to have pretty specific taste to be into that. But if you are, endisnight.com, you can see we have two episodes up. I don't have a new one coming out next week. All right, now let's get into the show. Uh, joining me today... Uh, as has has been the case for all of Slightly Condescending Film School. We have an awesome little panel in uh, Southeast Portland. It's at Anthony Lopez Part 2 on Twitter. It's Mr. Anthony Lopez. Hey, uh, very excited to be here. Uh, I want to just say I really enjoy uh, the End Is Night talk show. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's not any darker than Jimmy Fallon laughing at things he obviously doesn't find funny. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing- I mean that, oh, that's so nice of you to hear you say. And that is exactly how we felt as we were like, I don't yeah. think these people, these like 
talk show hosts recording in their house are acknowledging the darkness they feel inside. No, so I, let's put the inside on the outside. Yeah, that's what our show is. Uh, Jimmy Fallon's got the darkest soul on the planet. He I mean, does. Oh boy, does he! And also, I would work. I would work for him any any time. Yeah, nothing. Uh, you, call me up, Jimmy. But nothing on that show is darker than rubbing Donald Trump's head for a goof. I know. You know, it's a bad. It's a bad um, history he's got. But, but on the bright side, he is sad inside. So if that helps you. But uh, uh, also, I want to make sure we're real respectful today, Hunter. I know in uh, North Korea, Chinatown, where you live, you know, yeah. your dear leader is very ill right now. Hold on a second. So, Hold on a second. You're uh, all over the place. Hunter is between two Popeyes. He's in yeah, the it's my Bopo neighborhood. neighborhood. Saying, Alex, I am in live. North Korea. That's, that's what yes. I'm saying. I'm saying, Hunter, we need to be really oh, respectful. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. respectful because... Uh, dear leader, I know you're a supreme leader. I know you're not my wife. Uh, no, uh, the leader of uh, North Korea, actual I mean, North Korea. No, no, no. I'm not in actual North Korea, so I'm I'm no, north you just, of Korea. You like the cosplay that you are, so I know it's very, very important <laughs> to you. Uh, the People's Great Republic of North Korea, and no. it's you know things are going things are going dark right now. So I I'm poorly looking. It is. Things are weird there, but also if his sister starts running things, that's going to be interesting, right? Look, I know me and Wait, Kim Jong Un disagree on a lot of stuff, but you know he still he has a family, and I don't think we should make jokes about a politician. That's something Twitter <laughs> has driven into my brain a lot recently. That hey man, he's a person too, so you can't make jokes about. Someone the darkest joke, it. I think, in uh, the end is night was a joke where we were hoping a politician would die, and then we got really concerned and really, and we decided we should not tell that joke. And then when he was recording it, Curtis said it anyway, and so now I'm really frightened that we're going to get what in trouble for that at some point. I, I'm not mentioning it here. Oh, you fill in what would make you upset, and then see how you feel. You know, about it's it. hard. There's so many kind of on <laughs> the short list here, but it was Ted Cruz. Ah. Uh, it was Ted Cruz. Um, and I was proud of the joke when I wrote it, and I sent it to Curtis. I was like, this is a thing we can't say, but it's funny. And he put it in the show. Anyway, um, I appreciate you looking out for me, Anthony. I refer to my wife as dear leader, and she is in excellent physical health. That's um, good to hear. Also joining us today in uh, uh, Bopo, Port- Northeast Portland, mm-hmm. uh, at Hungry Hunty on Instagram, it's Mr. Hunter Donaldson. Yeah, it's me. Oh, hey, also, I want to start mentioning uh, my Letterboxd, if anybody uses Letterboxd. Um, I've been getting really what into it. Letterboxd? So it's a social media platform where you just record like what you think about movies and stuff. Um, if oh. you want to follow me on Letterboxd, my name is Hunbun, letterboxd.com slash Hunbun. Um, and I actually made a list keeping track of all of the movies we've covered in season three of Read It and Weep, uh, excluding all of Quentin Tarantino's filmography, because that just seemed like a lot to put in there. And any one, mm-hmm. any of the movies that I just deemed like extra credit. Um, so you can look at oh, what boy. I specifically think of all of these movies outside of, of these two bozos, basically, if you want. You That's such a me. great idea. Okay, so you can follow on Letterboxd. So it's B-O-X-D in mm-hmm. the, the way of things. And I'll throw a link in the show notes. And also, um, I will join and play along. So by the time this comes out, you can also find me uh, on there as well. Yeah. I don't know what I'll be, but um, that sounds like a fun thing to do. It's a very um, fun website. I'm usually just Alex Falcone if that's available. And if it's not available, sometimes I go with Alex Falcone Party Time 42069. So we'll see. What well, you should open. just go with that second one because that one has a little more personality in it. And by a little, <laughs> I mean a lot. 
<laughs> uh, that's an awesome mention. Also, congratulations on finishing your big tournament on your other podcast. Oh my god! Um, yeah. I uh, I tried to watch part of it, oh, and it you. is confusing. Thank you for trying to watch, though. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's I, easy when you stream twelve hours a day. It's like, well, is he on? Probably. Yep, probably on. Um, the moment where the game itself finished, um, I screamed so loud <laughs> that the our neighbors were concerned and everyone that lived in my house was really concerned and surprised and I frankly annoyed and I would have been annoyed too um, because six months of my life led to one moment of a stupid board game that matters to nobody but hey guess what it matters a lot I can play we can play that game so hard that I will cry I know that for a fact now (laughs) well now that I know that it has a lot more psychological manipulation I could understand crying more it's like (laughs) When I, there was like, so what I liked was that there was secret conversations between two players, but we, the Twitch streamers, got to hear it. Yeah. So yeah. we got to know all the secrets. Well, it's, it's sort of like Risk um, on the stupidest version where you like, like, it's like where you try to convince someone to attack someone else because you know it'll help you. That's what I, I saw that sure, happening. It's, it's sort of, it's like Risk, but if you kind of threw in some like, kinky sub dom aspects to it oh yeah there's a lot of like power and just kind of like weird strange maybe sexual maybe not energy just kind of there the amount of spread made me think it was not sexual but i'm oh, not paying attention no, directly you missed it you missed it <laughs> and wait, and Alex, you're the one telling us that you think spreadsheets aren't sexual <laughs> there's ever been a person i know who i who have you asked me you didn't like get turned on by spreadsheets, it would be you. I'd be like, yeah, Alex. Look, probably. if you do a really good job of formatting it and like removing all the borders and stuff so it looks pretty, I could get a little bit into it. All right. So before we talk about our movie today, um, let's jump into um, our little mini segment. What else have you watched this week? Um, let's start with Anthony. Anthony, what is on your mind this week? What have you been watching? Um, I just minutes ago, right before I came up here to do this, my wife and I had just finished rewatching Jurassic Park, which I had oh. not seen in a while. It is probably my wife's favorite film, uh, and definitely her like go to if she's not feeling super good, just have it on in the background movie. Uh, so she's seen it a lot more than I have. I certainly love it. Uh, I do think it is. Certainly uh, a nice counterpoint to uh, Terminator 2, which we did last week, because uh, they both came out within a year from each other. They're absolutely two of the, the two films that are the pinnacle of like all the toolbox, all the tools in the toolbox of the filmmaking craft. You know, like it's also a very, very early visual effects CG film, but also has incredible puppets and miniatures and all this, you know, great just use of filmmaking. John Williams score. Every time I, it's like, this happens a lot with John Williams movies. I was going to say this one last thing about it, but just like, I was like, John Williams is very good. I know that, but he's one of the few composers who every time I watch one of his films, I'm just like, fuck, this guy is good. It all sounds exactly like him. Like, yeah. Danny Elfman is the only other one who comes to mind in terms of like. Well, Hans Zimmer too is like. Very, very unique sound. What? 
<laughs> Every Hans Zimmer, oh, your Hans Hans Zimmer, Zimmer please live, do your Hans Zimmer one more time. I think he lives on timpani. That's what I think. Right. But all but, Hans Zimmer's your I like that it's like a choo-choo train to you. Yeah. Well, if you if, if you could see me, um, I am pounding on very large drums. So that's uh, what is making the noise. You can't see it, but I'm uh, but yeah, um, very good movie. Enjoy it I, still I, quite a bit. I have a, a, a of a film school question, I guess, about the, that. That reminds me of so um, Terminator Two was at the same time where they're in this cusp where we're starting to do some digital effects, but it's still got a lot of practical effects. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I and I thought it looked great. I thought there was like, except for maybe like little bits of the futuristic part, um, mostly. It looked pretty good, and I thought, especially the main, um, the, the the main pig, metal pig, he looked really good. Um, I watched rewatched Jurassic Park a couple years ago, and I did not think it looked very good. Um, oh, I thought dang. mostly it looked silly. I mean, and I think can I ask you what, can, can, well before we tell him that he's wrong. <laughs> no, this like is a <laughs> years long argument <laughs> I've been having with Alex. So I've, I've heard his complaints about it, and it's well, like. Most of the time, yeah, he's watching it on like week. a 480 no, monitor no, from 10 not feet true. away. That's uh, true. That Jurassic Park I watched on DVD at my wife's parents' house on a real television. What I just um, need to know specifically, this is not specific enough for me. What do you think looks bad? The CG shots? Are you talking yeah, about the, the animatronics? The CG shot. The, no, just the CG shots. The CG shots just look like bat, like cartoons. So the that only I ones that come to mind really right. are the, I mean, because the T Rex is a lot of practical. Uh, there's the long, what are they called? Bron- Bronchiosaurus in the opening, those are, which those are digital. Yeah, and then there's like a handful of shots. I mean, that's what what's really oh, the cool. Velociraptors are digital for uh, a lot yeah. of the a lot of that is the they're mostly in the dark which helps a lot they also is a lot of puppets as well for the velociraptors and that's kind of the thing is like, i think one of the yeah so the so the brontosaurus really got me and then there was another scene that was i think it was like the that that moment that we were supposed to be like so impressed and we you pull back and you see a huge field of dinosaurs and they just they look like a kid drew them now and at the time they looked amazing to me but let, let's let's take this. So put this in whatever other movie you need to think about to understand the question. And the question is like, are there? Is it that there's a time period that is the worst where we're transitioning? Is it that any? It doesn't matter what time period it is. There are things that do because I felt like Terminator did hold up better. Um, like, is there a, a a thing where? Is there any time period that's always going to hold up? Because some practical effects look really bad too. Yeah. Um, well, so I mean, like, that's what I was gonna. Is, are we? Are we in the worst? I, I wonder if like there is like the '90s or early 2000s, like some some of the worst time for stuff holding up because it was in the beginning of going all digital. But now I feel like also a lot of our all digital stuff now still looks bad. So yeah, anyway, so is there a time it's, period? It's how you, what makes the difference? I don't think it's. I think it's a handful of things, right? So I think if you want to get into it, so I I love giving you shit about your Jurassic Park takes because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i love that movie dearly it means a yep. lot to me i always view with through nostalgic goggles whenever i do it and to me the shots that i i objectively can say like the first time you see the brontosaurus don't look that great but also modern dinosaurs i don't think look that great in the new jurassic parks either right the stuff that looks yeah. really good is the stuff that like the cg shots at night in the rain 
those look better today, even though they like a uh, shot in broad daylight. But it's yeah. to me, it's like the uh, the like buying into the suspension of disbelief. Like by that point in the movie, I'm always so engaged in the plot and characters that it doesn't bother me. Uh, I don't believe I do believe that you know this, and especially as such a film nerd, because I have like such a context of like the groundbreaking work that went into this movie. I can appreciate like yeah, that doesn't look good, but it's still a technical marvel for its time. I mean, that was yeah. really the first time anyone had done that. But I don't think I definitely think that the early nineties, oh, most of the nineties have special effect shots that don't look great. But you could say that about any period. It just comes to like things, different things look better at different times. I would say we're probably in a boom for like digital rear projection looks better today than it ever did in like the 40s. Well, yeah, that's such that's such an interesting point, too, is I yeah, when I was watching um, uh, the long long sleep. Yeah, yeah. the big sleep. That was what it was. The big sleep. It wasn't just a nap. <laughs> the long um, sleep. <laughs> the big sleep is death. The long sleep is at night. Deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we were actually the whole the whole time we were watching the big sleep. We were waiting for someone to take a nap, and they never did. Um, but anyway, in that there's like some rear projection that looks real shitty and is distracting to me. But I've also there's I'm sure there's a lot of rear projection I'm not annoyed by because I'm not noticing particularly. So yeah, I mean yeah, that, there's I, like I think this, I'm sure we're better at that. I think this way, like evaluating this, I think is like pretty tricky and kind of difficult to do because I'm not even really sure what it would mean to say. Like, what does it mean by look good? Like the the effect. I, can I like, answer? Oh yeah, go ahead. I get, to me, what I mean is, if I'm watching the movie and I'm not thinking ever about computer effects, it's good. And if I'm thinking, wow, this is a dated computer effect, it's bad. Or I even a modern say, computer effect. I would say that. Jurassic Park actually probably does better by that metric for me personally, because like, let's take, oh, any old movie, uh, Jurassic World 2. Uh, <laughs> I'm just pulling that one out. Yeah. In sure, a lot okay. of ways, the special effects, air quotes, look better. But as an audience member, me watching it, I am much less convinced of the reality of the world that 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 world movie builds. Oh, it has world in the title. That's fun. Uh, then I am Jurassic of Jurassic World Park, building. even though I, you know, in a way I understand what you mean of like, yeah, it doesn't look like good. Like it's not as like flashy or as like, but I think it's actually the execution is probably smarter and better in Jurassic Park. They're also going for something different in Jurassic World 2. Don't get me wrong. Jurassic World 2 is basically like a horror movie at times. Yeah. Um. Well, I, so I guess that's one of the reasons why I thought, it, like, so I mentioned this on the Terminator too. Is one of the I was one of the reasons why I thought it was not distracting at all is because the the place where it exists is almost exclusively the thing from the future that is not humanoid. Yeah, and specifically, it's not skin either. It's not trying to emulate thing that computers are really really bad at, which is people. Yeah, they're really good at smooth robot things. So I thought it was like it seemed like they, it was a really good grasp of what computers are good at and what they're not and doing that. Um, whereas like, I, I guess I feel like in Titanic, the thing that bugged me when I rewatched Titanic was that the shot of the boat 
and the swelling music is supposed to be this breathtaking import, just like the first bronchiosaurus. It's like, or yeah, bronchiosaurus. Yeah. Um, it's, it's supposed to be breathtaking and it looks, and so the corniness is more bothersome where you're like the effect here is how real this looks and it doesn't look real as opposed to the effect here is how weird and robot-y this looks and it does. Yeah, I mean, that's tricky because it sounds like if the moment is so, yeah, we can take both those moments and basically say, I think the thing they have in common is that they were built for opening night. They weren't necessarily built for, you know, 10 year, like for today yeah. you're watching it however you want. You know what I mean? Like, so I think for a moment like that to land correctly, you're going to have to kind of meet the movie halfway, watch it yeah. in the highest fidelity that you could possibly watch it on with the best like screen that you can possibly watch it on. Uh, in order to reproduce that effect somewhat, because if you're unimpressed by that and your setup is, you know, just kind of whatever, or you're not being very careful about that part, then yeah, those things aren't going to land that well. We can all, we could watch any movie on our phones and basically rob it of any of that, uh, context of like this being well, like spectacle. Like, sometimes it's just what I have available, you know, like I had for a long time, I didn't have a TV. I just had a screen. Yeah. And like now, you know, like now I have a, a, a better TV and I have some, some, but sometimes I'm like in a really big hurry and I only have, I don't know, like a quibby to watch yeah, television. Yeah. It's definitely a limitation. I'm not trying to take that away from you. I just mean more as criticism. It, I feel like it doesn't quite land as well because it's just kind of like, well, I mean, what did you want them to not, do that mo like like they needed to wow people opening night and like that i think the memory of people seeing the brontosauruses for the first time and being because i mean audiences were clearly like blown away by it um yeah. that is kind of the thing it's kind of crummy but like it's kind of the thing that that you kind of have to remember when you're watching yeah. a moment like and that like you know the alternative to it was like i don't know if you've ever gone like how deep you've ever gone in like the making history and the history of making Jurassic Park. But they were until like literally months before shooting going to do uh, like old Ray Harryhausen stop animation dinosaurs for the movie. And you can find test. Uh, can you? Yeah, you can find them online, like full, like not like they were like test shots. They weren't like in the kitchen or anything, but like what it would have like them doing like, showing Spielberg what the dinosaurs were going to look like as stop animation puppets. And that would look even worse today, I would argue, than the CG was just because even like the greatest stop animation is always going to have that jitteriness to it. That's just like, it's impossible to get that kind of smooth animation. So I think that it's the thing is like, you want to show dinosaurs to an audience. You only have so many tools available to you and i think it's you know like james cameron is a great example of someone who is very very smart with his special effects and you know sometimes maybe oh his you know reach exceeds his grasp but spielberg i think also has that and yeah there's a few big money shots but there are i bet there are like if we went through jurassic park and went through like special effect shot by special effect shot i could find a handful of them that you would think were puppets, but I could guarantee you was CG, right? Um, and it's the same thing with, like, kind of how I feel about, like, visual effects in general in movies is that it's, you know, it's how it's used and what it's used for. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is find someone who talks about how, like, CG is ruining movies and then ask them what they're, like, 
favorite movies of the last five years or and then search that movie VFX reel. Uh, because the amount of special effects in every single movie on, on, made today will blow your mind. And it's like, it's not. Yeah, I, I've seen this like pop up on like Reddit gifts every once in a while. And it's stuff that I hadn't really thought about. But it's 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 because they're not like our special effects is an alien spaceship. It's like our special effects is we didn't want to go to London for this shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just literally getting rid of cables and stuff. Yeah. Like that. Right. Getting it's a lot. Of, it's Yeah. A lot of a lot of old signage is different. Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah. They, it's just a lot of stuff that I would never think about. Yeah, and it's like that kind of stuff that is really interesting in terms of like, wow, like they really does completely change the landscape. Like, I can't believe this whole scene was shot on a green screen. Why didn't they just rent a house? And it's like, well, it's easier this way. Right. I think there's a good topic that I wanted to talk about anyway, so it's okay that it elongated this segment. But in, in hopes of wrapping this up soon, Hunter... Oh, sure. What have I'll you just, been watching? I'll week? just throw out something quick. Well, I haven't really been watching much of anything because I've been busy as a horse. Um, but I have been playing uh, a little bit of D&D. And um, I also just wanted to throw out, uh, I think I talked about him last week, but um, a video game critic that I admire a lot, uh, Tim Rogers, um, is going, he quit his job and he's going uh, solo. Um, he has a Patreon now. Uh, it's called Action Button um, is the name of his Patreon. Uh, if you like, uh, we're, we're going to talk about Final Fantasy VII Remake in like a little extra bonus episode. Um, mm-hmm. And if you are uh, the type of person that likes those types of games, I would encourage you to uh, check out Tim Rogers. He has a really interesting um, series called Let's Mosey, where he talks about um, the very crappy English translation of Final Fantasy VII um, and gives like a <laughs> very fun and hilarious overview of all the like little compromises and weird mistakes uh, that were made in that game that was made in like 1997. So it's like a long time ago, but um, anyways, yeah, check him out. He's great. And I've uh, been playing a lot of D and D my character's name is fish face. Um, he is a gnome and he likes to eat dirt. Um, <laughs> and you always have the best characters. I like all of your characters. I think you've played with Fishface before, right? I've played, I've played Fishface. Oh, we did play Fishface briefly, and then that one, that game got stopped. But I do like Fishface. My thing about Fishface is he's like my my Zatoichi. He just like walks from, he goes from game to game uh, <laughs> in search of like, a, he's like a Ronin. Yeah, he he doesn't have a group. He wants to like play with. He wants to hang out with people. Um, and until I find a solid group for him, he's j- I'm just going to play as him. But he's a he's he's a fun little he's a fun little guy. Anyways, that's, that's it. That's rad. all I got. I'll just want that's great. Um, I I'll, real quick for me. So um, I do want to say uh, this is mostly to Anthony. So Anthony, I know you are um, skipping Westworld this season because you don't like it, and that's fair. Um, and I for the first three episodes wanted to tell you how much you needed to watch it because it's so great. And I was getting ready to like try to bully you into actually watching along. And then last week, um, I believe it was episode four, was one of the worst episodes of any show I've ever seen. It was just <laughs> atrocious and it made me mad retroactively about how much time I'd it was I've never had a thing that I was enjoying so abruptly fall off a cliff and there's one there's a new episode from a couple days ago that i have not from yeah two days ago that i have not watched yet and i will and we'll see if it brings it back but i was just furious it was crazy it was like it was the goofiest 
dumbest. Oh my god! And it was after one of the best one of the best episodes they've ever done too. It's just it's so strange. Like they just like it felt like we were driving down the freeway and they pulled the emergency brake. Like it just didn't. It was just abrupt and terrible. Anyway, very very upsetting. Um, that is yeah. Uh, HBO has been killing it. And by killing it, I mean destroying their biggest franchises recently. <laughs> they, they're going two for two. Uh, well, on, but I will say in their defense, um, I also am finally, my wife and I are catching up on sec- on the second season of Succession, and oh, they made it free. Yes. It's free now. So we, we do not have HBO normally, and we're just getting episodes we need one at a time. But this is totally worth it. We can just go yeah, watch Succession su- for free. Succession season two was very good. I cannot suggest that enough. I also, yeah, we, we're enjoying it so far. Did you see that Ed Harris interview going around this week uh, about no. Westworld season three? Did when, he apologize? No. So Ed Harris okay. is always kind of a grouchy guy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is so over it. Uh, the show at this point. He, he said this line that like he is, you know, he's a real. Oh, I mean, I so far what they did with his character is yeah. terrible. So I can understand why he's mad. But well, uh, just the interview is asking him all these questions, like, do you know why this happened? Do you know why this happened? Like, and he's like, I don't know. They don't tell me anything. And they're like, so it's, it seems like it must be a little frustrating. He's like, look, I signed up to play the man in black and now they got me playing the man in white and I don't know what's going on anymore. (laughs) It was really is upset at his hat changing colors. Um, I did want to ask you now um, we've already talked a lot, uh, but the movie is short. Um, But so the show movie we're about to talk about is 13 minutes long. And I realized before I watched that, um, that I had watched my 44th movie for the year. Oh, cool! And um, which which tied uh, a couple years. The first year that I ever tracked was 2015, and I watched 44 movies that year. And this is, as you may have noticed, not quite the end of the year yet. Uh huh. So um, like I am it. on on a burning pace. I know it's. I know we've we have, yeah, we've aged a lot in this Q1 2020. But um, yeah, we just uh, anyway. I've just watched more movies than I watched last year more movies than I watched 2015. Um, I've my, my biggest year ever was 72, but here's what I'm, I'm feeling like even this year, which is by far the most on pace to be the most ever watched by like double. It seems like every time I talk to you, especially you, Anthony, but both of you in general, you've all just, you've seen more movies than me that week or recently. Like how do you find the time I guess is my main question because this has been like a, just a huge amount of consumption for me and uh, it just seems like it's dwarfed. So like, is there a moment in your day, Anthony, where you're not watching a movie? I guess yeah, that's my main I question. Mean, uh, when I do watch movies, uh, normally it is sitting down for with dinner with my wife and we watch a movie. That is. And you watch the whole thing. So you just eat real slow. No, no, I mean, Wait, we, how are you not upset about the soup problem if you're watching these during dinner? <laughs> I can pay attention and eat at the same time. And we usually eat, look, we're usually done with the food by like the 10, 15 minute mark of the movie. Sure, and then yeah, it's yeah. just snacks just and, and enjoying the movie. Uh, but, but you yeah. watch a movie, you would say like, like most or all dinners? Uh, most of the time when we're having dinner, we're going to watch a movie with it. Yes, that right. is very very common in my house uh, and then it used to be 
when we could go out, uh, my wife and I were always signed up for like movie pass or right about to sign up for a year for the regal one. Yeah. Really dodged the bullet on that one. Let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> oh man, I bet you did. We were competing it so heavily, and then the coronavirus happened, and we were like, that's "Well, funny. never mind." Uh, yeah, and there's been a few upsides, and that's one of them. Yeah, and then you know when we do have something like that, it feels like any time we have like an evening free, like uh, we don't have plans with friends or any event to go to, it feels like this real like. We're just kind of like losing money by not going to see a movie. Uh, So that's a good way to stay motivated as well. Yeah, Um, the year I watched the most movies was definitely when I had Movie Pass. That was a crazy stretch. And then sometimes I just can't sleep. Uh, So let's just throw on a movie to get my brain to shut up for a little bit. That also helps quite a bit. Um, Hunter, where do, how does this fit? Where do these fit into your life? Like, how much of your time, and where do you put movies in movie watching? Uh, that's an interesting question. I feel like I, um, I don't really feel like I watch that many movies. I mean, I probably watch at least a movie a week, which I don't think is that crazy of a of an amount, uh, in- including the pod or separate from the pod. I would say probably well okay if we include the pod then it's then yeah all right fine two two average of two movies a week um doesn't sound like that many to me but i would say my answer to this question is more that i feel like i don't have a lot of patience for movies that kind of don't fit in this like the thing that we're doing of uh like these are just the types of movies that i watch all the time this is this is why I like to watch if, thirteen minute silent films from the forties. Well, no, not not exactly that. But um, the whole premise of condescending film school, um, I would say all of these movies are the movie, the type of movie on average that I would end up watching anyways. Um, yeah, this isn't me going outside of that, and I actually feel like I have a lot of gaps when, it, like for example, I've never seen Back to the Future. I've never seen any of those movies. Um, really, I have a lot of like big pop culture gaps actually um but if you were talking about movies that would be on like a film school uh curriculum i feel pretty caught up there and that's because yeah. when i was like from like age like 20 to maybe like 24 i watched a ludicrous amount of movies like an unhealthy mm. amount of movies um i have no idea what my average would have been then but i was just burning through like just movies constantly basically interesting and all my friends did too so like and we even had we had all these weird rituals like we would pick a movie and then we would just watch it and talk about it all week so it would just be on constantly like it would just be and it would always be some weird movie like i remember it like for maybe a whole month all i watched was the double life of veronique if you know that movie um that's it that's all i watched and that was just on constantly and then i would go over to my friend andrew's house and guess what he added on too and then we would just <laughs> randomly watch like one scene it was very weird stuff that that me and my friends did well but that i mean this is exactly what i was both of these answers are exactly what i was looking for to just sort of understand how it is that i am feeling so far behind which is not to say that you or either of you are average viewers by any stretch but like it feels like even in the year where I was doing this show, so I had a movie a week for this, and I was writing a column about new movies for the local art paper, I still only watch 75 movies, which is like not that many if you were doing it every day at dinner or the the way you're doing it. So um, I, I and I sort of I get the impression from the, the general world people watch on average one movie a year. 
Um, <laughs> it's just, in general, people do not see that many movies, but the people I like hanging out with by perhaps coincidence all watch, it seems like movies the entire time I'm not with them. So it's fascinating. Um, so be, the, let's, but let's use that to get into now our, our movie this week, which was a short assignment. Our topic for this week is the 1943 experimental short film Meshes of the Afternoon, mm-hmm. uh, created by and starring Maya Dern. Hunter, why have you picked this film for us? Well, I'll tell you why. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, Great. That's the premise I, of the segment. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm actually more, uh, what I mean to say is I'm more interested in what you have to say about it, Alex. Uh, I just want to instantly just turn this around on you right now. And I'm just a, as kind of a like, how far have we come? Where are we at with you and your, because we're supposed to be condescending to you. And mm-hmm. this is also meant to be school. So in like a Alex, (laughs) Alex, what do you think about meshes of the afternoon? Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So the reason why you picked it will come, will be revealed later after I just tell you how I felt about it. The reason is the, the reason is simply, I wanted to know what you thought about it. And I wanted to see where we were at with you watching an art film, making you watch an art Mm. film and seeing what you think it was short. But I would mm-hmm. say in a lot of ways it was I, I had only seen it once before, um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of challenging. But I just I just want to hear what you have to say about it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, you know, we were talking. So in the metaphor of uh, soda or coffee, where soda is delicious and coffee is like a little bit more of an acquired taste, but both get you, you know, um, the caffeine jolt. Yeah. Um, just catching people up on what that metaphor means. I, you know, you said this was some strong coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, so I guess how I feel is, um, unevolved. I feel <laughs> like maybe I've not been paying enough attention in school. Um, that this still felt like coffee. This felt like, I mean, I am able to enjoy art, I think, but in the wrong way. I think we talked about this back in the early episodes, which is like, like I love modern and contemporary art. I mm-hmm. love going to mm-hmm. contemporary art museums and, and I don't understand it. And if, if an artist heard me talking about their art, they would be so upset, I believe. But my general feeling on art is like, whoa, you made a Santa out of poo. Right. That's it. That's my whole thing. It's well, just okay, like, this but in is your, some shit. In your, so in this, you made a Santa out of I, poo way. What yeah. was this? Yeah. So like, there were, I mean, it was short and I um, probably should have set more time aside. I, I watched it twice um, back to back. And here's, so I'll, I'll open with my embarrassing thing, which is the second time I noticed that she had fallen asleep before the crazy shit happened. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time I watched it, I was like, well, this is a weird movie. And then the second time I'm like, oh, this is a, a dream sequence that sort of makes sense in mm-hmm. dream logic. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I, if I had written my like three sentence summary for people who have not seen it, if, um, my the first draft of the summary that I wrote after watching it the first time, it was um, Maya Dern is stuck in a groundhog situation where she's cursed to relive the experience of coming home that. from work <laughs> and has to fight off a clone army and her stabby husband <laughs> I that love was like that. my original read that's and in very a poop cool. santa way i was like this is crazy <laughs> um 
and there are things that are just like in the way that I like modern art. There are things that I really enjoy, like Mirror Face Lady is so cool. Yeah. Um, that's such a cool effect. Uh, is just a character whose face is a mirror, and I believe is probably just a person holding a mirror in front of their face and wearing a robe. It looked so cool. Um, and then I did okay. So then that was that was my f- first time. Was just like, well, that's cool. And that one scene where she's like falling up the stairs is really cool. But also. Um, uh, yeah, I was most. I was like, I don't, I don't understand why any of this is happening. Then when I saw it was a dream, I was like, okay, well, it's a dream, and I don't really under this. And the second time, I, I here's what it was. The second time, I was like, this feels like some metaphors, <laughs> and my gut reaction is to Google them, or even just scroll down the YouTube comments and wait for someone to explain the metaphors for me. But then I was like, nope, my job is to go into this not knowing things so I can learn along with the listener, um, and. And that would require you guys to explain the metaphors to me, but then you put me on the spot and maybe uh, do a book report before well, anyone else had heard about it. So I don't understand why. Why is Maya Dern fighting mirror face Maya Dern and googly stabby eye or googly eye stabby Dern and um, Houdini Dern and like what like why are Houdini any of these things Dern. happening? <laughs> That's the oh Houdini Dern was the when she swallows a key and yes, then regurgitates yes. it. It's a classic classic it Houdini bit. And then she also there was also. Um, and then she turns into her husband at one point um, around the stabbing time, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And then definitely, so the mirror face. And then the second watch, I was like, oh, this mirror that she kills herself with at the end is like shards of mirror. That's a mirror in two different places. That probably doesn't happen on accident in a movie like this. But I could not tell you what it meant. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, you, how- if, if you had to, if you had to put together what the movie might be about. Let's just say you have to take a guess. You just got to take a stab at it. What do you, what, what do you feel was trying to be communicated to you in a, in as vague or like, you know, if you can go wide with this, I don't care if you had to say, here's what this is about. What would that be? What do you think? Well, so obviously one of the themes is afternoon. (laughs) And, I mean, I do I usually, that. I like to look at a title as my reference point for what metaphors are coming up. Um, I don't usually use meshes as a, as not, it's not a commonplace word now. And I don't know if that's a 40s term mm-hmm. for like, uh, but it does seem like maybe she's not, not, not well. Yeah. Like maybe she's like psychologically like not well. I agree. I mean, there's a lady running around with a mirror face, you know? Yeah. 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 And then she stabs herself in the neck with a shard of a separate mirror. So it's like, man, this lady does not think she looked cute today. No, that's a joke. But I do. Yeah, I don't know. I uh, if I had to go I like wider that. than well, that? Alex, Alex, you you did it. As far as I'm concerned, you just did it, man. Yeah, and I mean, if I great. had to if to get from my kitchen to my living room, I had to go through a beach and a forest. I'd be crazy, <laughs> too, you know, it does. It really makes that commute uh, a lot more exhausting. I think but just, she finds a flower and then falls asleep with it. So, yeah, I mean, also, there's like a little bit of that, like, um, uh sleeping beauty vibe mm-hmm. where she's yeah. like because like he shows up while she's asleep i don't know yeah I, yeah i feel like you're 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 like making this harder by feeling like there is like a i mean a i right didn't do answer. much research on this maybe there is like a definitive one but i feel like if you saw this up in a gallery or something no one is gonna stop you immediately and go you can't leave until you tell me exactly what this is about well it's sort right. of what hunter just did to yeah. me right now well, on my well, own podcast can you just uh explain like 
not really. It's not like you're gonna get in trouble. It's not like you. All, all you I was looking for quiz. is no. You did a good job. Yeah, and, you did a good and, job, Alex. And, and all I was asking for is, and I think I think this is what these types of movies are really good for. What their value is is to just have you engage with the material. There's not a lot there. There's 14 mm. minutes of stuff happening, mm. and it is all. I mean, like for someone. If you were to describe what you got from this movie and someone were to look at you and say like, well, you're wrong. Clearly, that's not what this is about. They have missed the point, that person. That person who is attacking you for having your own take what about on the time an experimental when I, what movie. What about my first reaction when I didn't realize that she was asleep? Because that, that sounds pretty I mean, wrong. That is, that is a big plot thing that you missed. But that's yeah. okay to miss something and then go with what you got. You know what I mean? That's not oh, okay. wrong. And that's also it not a bad like thing I to learn It feels like I should have not missed it. <laughs> I mean, I think I probably missed that my first time, honestly. Because I would have just well, been like, it's experimental. It's supposed to be a bunch of weird images. It, I yeah, bet and I they like go really close on her eyes fluttering. And that could mean other things. Um, totally. Yeah. This is, um, in fact, actually, I'm trying to find for you right now. I found this very good quote that is essentially her talking about what this movie means. And it's something like, I wish I had it pulled up. I do not. But it's basically her saying, I'm going to paraphrase her. But she basically says the movie is her attempt to communicate a um, psychological uh, experience that you wouldn't be able to communicate. So it's like literally she's kind of saying like, there, this is like me trying to get to a human experience that I can't put into words, so I can't even describe what it is that I'm actually going for. So in that way, there is certainly no right answer at all. But there was there was an experience that she's thinking about when she was making this feeling. So here's what I think is really cool about movies at the end of the day, is that movies are closest um, to you taking a dream and making it real. It's, I think, the realest you can make a dream, and you can kind of give your dream to another person. I think that's a really exciting potential for movies. And I think what's really Mm. cool about this is I think this is kind of a very raw cut of a dream she had that she is now trying to communicate to you, and she did it in 1943 with honestly garbage tools compared to yeah, what yeah. she would have now to be able to do that. Yeah, this. like right now, today on an iPhone, this would be such an, she yeah. would make it in an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was one of the main things I sort of, that I find really fascinating about this period and these types of films is just the the amount of work of getting, shooting this, especially like the split diameter stuff when it's like multiples of her in the same frame. Like yeah. of doing that on an old what like eight or sixteen millimeter camera, uh, having to get that processed, having to manually splice these different shots together, uh, yeah. just the work that went into making something like this in nineteen forty five mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, because so so this sounds insulting, but like one of the things I felt like watching it was it reminded me of uh, I used to work in, a, in, a, in the multimedia lab in college, and I was not a film student, but there were film students were always in there editing films, and I like just watching people work on stuff. A lot of it kind of looked more like this. Yeah, for and sure. I. And that sounds mean to her, but obviously it's harder for what she did. And also they were like probably watched her before they did that. Yeah, totally. But yeah. it does feel like that kind where it's like maybe you're, you're just like 
you're you're trying things and seeing how which i guess is what you call it experimental she yes. is just trying stuff and seeing how it turns out yeah i mean some of her other films are literally i mean i think they almost sound like even by the title like one of them's called meditation on violence like it's not it's not you know it's not some snappy title that's meant to communicate some sort of theme or deeper meaning it's literally just like eh, i made something about violence it's like a fancy way to say that i guess um, yeah, interesting. I, I did find uh, her note, and I do want to read it because it is a lot better than how I paraphrased it. So this is um, oh, interesting. What she said about uh, meshes of the afternoon. This, this is like you're getting live listener mail. This is yeah. like <laughs> the correction the that people are thinking. Yeah, This film is concerned with the interior experiences of an individual. It does not record an event which could be witnessed by other persons. Rather, it reproduces the way in which the subconscious of an individual will develop, interpret, and elaborate on an apparently simple and casual incident into a critical emotional experience. So that's actually the, I, that last part I completely left out and forgot that the whole point of this movie is that she sees, or sorry, I shouldn't say point, the catalyst for this movie is that she sees a stranger outside at the beginning. And this is kind of Drop her- a flower. Yeah. Um, and this is like just that little experience leads to all of these other thoughts and ideas and other experiences, basically. So, okay, let me ask you a question. Yeah. So now hearing you to say that and then thinking back through what I was watching and thinking of it as, especially the way you were describing it as like sort of like a, a, a dream, although it's, I guess it's a daydream, but it's like this rapid series of, of, weird or bullshit images that your brain creates after a, an incident happens mm -hmm. where you imagine running after the person who dropped the flower, you imagine seeing their face, but there is no face. It's just a mirror. Cause it's not a real thing that happens. Right. So you don't actually know what they look like. So you're making this up like that. This does seem like it, like in a really cool way captures that very brief moment after you see a thing and your brain makes a bunch of stuff up. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And yeah. now I really like it. Yes, yeah, but I oh, didn't like yes. it. Wait, wait, but I okay. didn't until you told me the the answer. Oh, and that's well, happened on a few movies. And so I wonder. It's like like this is another thing that I, I'm self conscious about when I am experiencing art, which is that I if there is a paragraph explaining what the uh, author was intending next to the art, I'm always going to read that right away and then use that to frame the art in my head because I enjoy it more that way. But mm -hmm. I feel like if I was a cool art person, I wouldn't look at what the author intended. I would just experience it and let it wash over me or whatever. And so I feel like I should have been able to watch this and be like, this is interesting on its own. And instead it's like, I don't understand what you're doing. And then if you tell me what you're doing, I'm like, oh, this is very cool. I mean, I have a question. Alex, is it possible for the opposite of that to happen to you? Like, could you ever see something be like, oh, I really enjoy mm. this, even if I don't, fully understand it or you know you see something and you're like i get this i understand it maybe i can't verbalize it fully but i think i understand what the artist was and going then i for. read the paragraph and i hate it yeah and it's something you that you just completely disagree with for that sure it happened i'm not i haven't thought of, i can't think of something right off the top of my head um would the closest that turn I you off from the like would what oh, I yeah, mean yeah. is, would the author's interpretation of the piece supersede your interpretation of the piece, thus ruining what you enjoyed about it? Well, we were talking about this last week. I think the closest thing to that is Star Wars, where George Lucas made all these 
uh, interviews on the special editions where he explained how bad his thinking, his thought yeah. process of making these movies was. Right. And it was like, I was enjoying this and everything you say makes it seem less cool. So how did you manage to do all these things when you're so dumb? But yeah, so yeah, like definitely, yeah, definitely seeing all, that could hurt it in this case, in the case of Star Wars, I guess it was firm enough. But if it was in this case where, like, I just watched it today in the afternoon, I saved it for the afternoon because I thought that felt thematic. Yeah. Um, uh, but so in that case, I f- sort of feel like uh, it's fresher and like the paint hasn't quite dried. So uh, it's a perfect time for someone to come in or the clay hasn't uh, hardened yet. So you can still come in and like m- mush it around. Um, but yeah, def- for sure, I could see something and be like, man, this is super cool. And then I read it and it's like, oh, this is about the glory of the Nazi state. I'd be like, well, no, I don't like it anymore. Yeah, that's a bummer now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think with a movie like this, it makes sense that your experience would be that way, though. Um, because with George, the movies that George Lucas makes, it's not like you need someone to illuminate them for you. You know, there's not. It's it's not like you're watching Star Wars and being like, what is the secret to the movie? Like, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no secret. You 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 either you get it, but maybe you don't understand George Lucas's thing. That's fine. I don't think you need George Lucas's input um, when no. it comes to a movie like Star Wars. And you That's don't true. need for the record. I don't think you need uh, when it comes to experimental film. I don't think you need what the author was going for. I think if you take what you take from the movie, that is just as valid as like looking at the director's notes. Um, I know I personally like that. I am interested in the people that made the movie and why they did the thing that they did. Um, A lot of times, especially with a movie like this, because it might be like, why I I might just be sitting there like, why is this movie like this? Um, And then you, yeah, you look and you find out. Yeah. Also, you know, with, all uh, form, but especially with film, and I think Star Wars and something like this are a great example. Of uh, Star Wars is a great example because if the movie in 1977 is what George Lucas actually had in his brain when he set out to make it, it would not be the classic it is, right? Right. There were right. a bunch of disasters on set, which led to the texture and feel. His his then wife at the time re-edited it and saved it in the edit. You know, people always talk about. How that film is how mm-hmm. it originally Wait, was edited. Yeah, Star I Wars, haven't heard the story. Yeah, George, uh, Mrs. Lucas made the movie better. He had to beg her to come fix it. Like it's it yeah. goes deep. Like she was working on something else, and he was like, "Will you please come fix this movie?" And she yeah. just fucking sat down and and pooped out a classic. She took yeah. his jumbled. His scenario that made why no sense I, and was in a stupid order. Why do order. I know his name and not hers? Because uh, he will really hard to make sure that happens. Like, Honestly, you know. <laughs> no. Here's, here's, here's why you know his, his name and not hers. is because he had a really smart contract with, what yeah. was it, Fox? Fox, yeah. Because he was he was a very smart businessman that was able to sign away all of these extra rights to himself, and it's why Star Wars is even the thing that it is. Basically, is because he was able to turn it into this giant franchise and make a yeah. boatload of money off of that. But I mean, that's, so it's the type of stuff that it's not fair to credit like an artist vision for something. Because even something like Meshes in the Afternoon. This, I'm sure, was, you know, she probably didn't have a lot of ambition 
for making it. She probably had very realistic goals into what she could accomplish. But even this, I guarantee you, isn't what she originally 100% set out to make. Things were changed along the way. Like, things were discovered or accidents happened, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think that this, like, autistic... Uh, interpretation or point of view or anything like that is the wrong way to look at it because there is no set thing yeah. like that with movies you know for sure um, so so that's that's definitely been a theme of, of film school is just how hard it is to make movies and how many people are involved and how many things that like you couldn't control that contribute to whether something is good or not i i'm sure it's fewer things with Maya Dern's movies because it's just so short and small. And then also I feel like when I when I like look at paintings, it's less of that. It's more of just one person's brain on pooped onto a page. Mm -hmm. And so I should I should be like I, I guess maybe in that case I'm like I should I I'm more interested in what they were thinking because it is a pure vision as opposed to like Star Wars as an example. Yeah. yeah. I mean I also am like a not to sound like a pretentious snob, but I'm a real, like, the author is dead. Dead. Someone who interprets so if we, I, I want to hear more about that. So if we took that and made that not... Because, like, so it seems like you, you guys both have, like, different approaches to art, but in a way that overlaps. And then the part that overlaps is that if I'm... It, well, okay, not me specifically, because whatever I say is wrong. But what, what, <laughs> no. if, however, yeah. someone else enjoys a movie is right. Um, so uh, both of you have that vision. Um, but Anthony, yours is because you believe the author is dead. And that is so just, it's just different from the way my brain wants to process stuff. I'm super interested in the author all the time. So like, where does well, that come I mean, from? I that you be became so militant about that? in the author or like interested in what they say about it. Like if this is going to be a good interview that's like, Oh, this is very insightful. Or I used to listen to a lot when we were lucky enough to have these back in the day, like commentary tracks, which is a thing <laughs> that <laughs> so rarely happens now. I used to love that. But yeah, to me, me like I would love hearing that kind of insight and like having a better understanding of it. But to me, at the end of the day, once you release a piece of work, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to the people who view it and experience it. So if I want to say that your movie is about this and this and this, and you say it's something else, I don't care. Like, oh, that's that's another valid interpretation. There is no wrong in uh, interpretations. Of art. Do you it's think that old. changes for different art forms? Because I, it sounds like that no. sounds like something that is more effective with movies for the reasons we're no, just no. citing. But like, I absolutely do not. I think if I see a painting, what the painting means to me, right? All art is like there is no such thing as objective art. All art is subjective. All art is experiential. The way you experience it is going to be different than how the artist intends or how the person next to you experience it, right? All art is interactive. There is no such thing as non-interactive art because when you view something, you're interacting with it. So, so you're, you, you have been a writer and a performer at different times in your life. Does that How does that affect you as trying to be an author? Because to me, that sounds like it does take away some of the point of being an author if you don't matter. No, I mean, no, because my, my my job is to create and, like, pit out. Like, I don't, like, if someone came up to me and told me a joke meant this, I'm not going to be the type of person who's just, like, unless it's, like, something really wild. But even then, I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. I'm going to be like, oh, okay, that's an interesting interpretation. That's cool. Like, 
I want work to be interpreted in different ways. I something that drives me insane, especially when like kind of avant-garde directors like this um, get really into nailing down an interpretation and will just like repeat it over and over again. It's like, why not just make a normal ass movie then? If you right. want people to have a serious, like a- it's actually just code. If you're just, it's kind of actually, Alex, you've kind of talked about this before of just like, why don't people just say exactly what they mean? I think that argument actually makes sense in the context that Anthony is talking about. If you just made a complicated movie just for the sake of making it complicated, like why couldn't you have just like, why couldn't you have just communicated these thoughts better? And then I feel like on the other side of the, the spectrum, you have David Lynch, who basically doesn't comment on what his movies are about, if he even knows what they are about, yeah. which he might not. Yeah, I there's, mean, there's like, there's two like formative experiences that I remember about this and like uh, how I feel, how, like how I feel about the author and why, what I want from the author. And the one is like uh, reading The Giver in middle school or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys read The Giver? Yes. I know the story, but I've never yeah. read Great. it. Well, major spoiler or not, the main character either dies or doesn't at the end of the mm-hmm. book. And I finished the book and I was like, well, it seems like you could have made this more clear, Lois. You could have said <laughs> whether or not this person dies. Why do I? And then and then we had this big discussion in middle school about like, well, what is your interpretation of it? And I was like, well, I've here's my interpret. Here's my guess. Now, if you could have Lois tell me the correct answer that would be really Her helpful answer. and then there was an interview that was like where lois is like it's up to the interpretation of the reader and i was fucking furious like if you either there's two possibilities either you know and you're not telling me or you don't know and that feels really lazy and mean and weird as a can choice switch, of an author can to I just switch not examples care. on you real quick though please cuz i i think it's easier to switch it to somebody maybe you already like which is what about inception what about the end of the movie Inception? Because it's the exact same situation. How do you feel about um, that one? Well, so I guess I I would like there I would I would prefer the movie where the author tell or the the people who made the movie were like here's what we did and then I can say I like that or not instead of them saying it's up to you to make up an ending and like it or not. So the end of Inception did irritate me um and I, I think it's partly like that I was so mad at Lois Lowry and that has carried through to today. I mean what I don't understand is you're like the idea that it's either she knows and doesn't want to say it to uphold the idea that it, the story can be whatever it want, needs to be to the audience, or they're lazy, is the kind of a weird false dichotomy. Like, I don't think any story like that, the author is just like, you know, I guess I could think about what happened at the end there, but I just decided not to. Well, I guess I, the dichotomy that I think is real is either she has an opinion or she doesn't. Yeah. And I, and so if she doesn't have an opinion, then I think she's like one of the main reasons is because she didn't bother to think about it. Or another one is because she thought it was cute to not tell me. Well, I, and I don't think that I disagree. I mean, I think, I don't think you think it's cute. I think it's like the David Lynch is a great example. Like all the stuff we said on Maholland drive, none of that is from David Lynch. He has never, he doesn't comment on any of his work. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not because he's think he's trying to be cute. The reason why she says, I'm not going to say it's because she wants you to think about it. And because of people not, not trying to like dog on you, but people like you, who if she <laughs> said 
definitively one well, way or another. You're not trying to dog on me. You could have figured a different way to do that. People like 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 you, if she had said, no, he, he definitely dies, you would say, okay, the author says they definitely die. That's the ending. That's the interpretation. Anyone who thinks otherwise is wrong. And that's I have, I have kind the, of a... I have a follow up to this. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I don't see what's wrong with that world. I I <laughs> I think that the what you're talking about, Alex. Um, I actually uh, relate to you on this because I actually don't like the ending of Inception, and I didn't care for what's the other one, Lady and the Tiger, that you like read that teaches you about this trick. This is a trick we all learn about in school. It's not really that impressive or interesting. And I think in a lot of stories, when it gets used, it doesn't it might not hit correctly. Like with Inception, it didn't make me think more about the movie, which I think is yeah. the goal. Uh, I yeah, think I mean, if if there's an ending like that, it should make me look at the events that have transpired and kind of feel like I've de- some understanding of it has been deepened or like, oh, wow, I can read this a lot of different ways. Yeah, I mean, my problem with like the if, as Inception specifically as an example is I don't feel like the film does the work uh, to own that ending, but mm-hmm. as we all know, all Chris Nolan films are actually written and directed by an algorithm that is designed to make <laughs> the coldest, robotic, perfect movies they possibly can. Right, uh, interesting. And it's like that's how that type of that's how the algorithm knows movies like this end with an obtuse uh, "what does it mean" ending. And it's just uh, scary too. There's just one. There, if there's only two, t- so I guess what I'm saying is, if you take this principle and you shrink it down to a singularity that is uh, an ending where there's only two outcomes really possible, or it's not. There's only two outcomes possible, but the the story is kind of saying it's one way or the other, um, and they're not telling you, uh, whatever. That's like I don't hate that 100 percent of the time, but I can pretty much take it or leave it depending on the situation. I don't think that's a quite the same as a movie that just kind of gives you the keys and lets you drive it around the whole time from start to finish, which is what I would say to me is much more interesting and not quite related to the example that you're giving. Like they're definitely, they're definitely of the same, they're cut from the same cloth, but one is way more radical than the other. The other is just kind of a like fun, like, Oh, just think about it at the end or whatever. But like the idea of just giving you the movie and just you do whatever you, you, it's almost like, here's the shots. You make the movie yourself in your head. It's so much crazier than that. Uh, so yeah. So I guess I, I use the example of the giver just as to show like I was a literal kid. I was a very literal kid. I mean, yes. I was interested in the rule, learning the rules of a thing and trying to execute that thing. And so the fact that they're like this idea that it's up to you is difficult for me. And, and then I guess my realization from describing it is I do still feel that way, except now I've like built a bunch of justifications around it. So if, if she's not saying that he died and she's not saying that he lived, then she's saying something else by not saying, and I don't know what that is. And so I would still, so my point is, I guess the reason now my justification is I feel like it is unclear what you're saying and telling me the ending would help. But if not, then telling me why you made the ending this way would also help. But either way, I'm asking the author for their point of view so I can decide if I like it or not. And I'm irritated that David Lynch doesn't say anything about his movies because when we talked about it, hearing all that explanation, if you recall, I did not care for it when I watched it. And then I loved it afterwards and wanted to watch it again. So like, it does help me enjoy movies more. I agree. But I think... I think what I am curious about to see, and maybe this will never happen, but I think I will kind of want us to come back to stuff like this every once in a while just to see 
if eventually you do kind of take the opportunity to kind of make the movie what you want it to be. You know what I mean? Like what you see in it is just as valid as what anybody else sees in it. And I feel like that is kind of the lesson of these types of movies. Um, well, that's that one is really interesting for uh, just I want to pull this in for a landing here, but yeah, I yeah, do yeah. feel like on the Maya Dern, it is currently uh, available. It's currently being shown at MoMA in New York. And I may have actually seen it because I was in MoMA like in January. Um, uh, I'm 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 interested in how different it would feel. And I don't remember it, but how it would feel like to walk in and sit on those like black uh, Ottoman chairs in the back of a small room created in a larger room in an art museum and like what it would feel like then, you know, with the people who are there just to take a break from walking around a museum versus watching it at home on my computer um, on YouTube where um, there's 30 different versions of the movie with terrible musicians making up their own scores or sound effects to it which is so weird and distracting. And so just having like, anyway, it's just, an, in, this one seems like also the context is really, really interesting, but I assume Maya Dern was not making this to be in MoMA either. So here's my last question about this, which is where does film like this, just like where I was asking you before about how many movies you watch and how you cram them all in, where does Meshes in the Afternoon fit into your life, Hunter? Ooh, um, well, well, I don't know how interesting my answer is, but I mean, it's just like if I want to watch experimental avant-garde film, then I watch stuff like this. I don't know. Like I, I feel like my life already has a little spot for well, these. Th- this so for this, for sure, couldn't be a movie that you would sit down and watch during dinner, right? This feels like you have no. to care about it and dedicate more cycles of your brain to it. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think this is if if I'm going to watch a movie like this, then part of the reason that I'm even watching it in the first place is probably because I want to respond you know what i mean like it's like these if you watch so like someone else you could watch if you liked this is uh stan breckage um also makes a lot of movies like this that you kind of just have to take them and do what you will with them uh in your brain and i feel like that is um which by the way uh, i just wanted to mention that uh she was awarded a guggenheim off of this um a guggenheim fellowship off of this movie. Uh, actually, I don't know if it's specifically this one or if it was like a collection of her movies. Um, so, I mean, her goal in making this was to make art. She was just trying to make art. Um, yeah. Just to, just to simplify that as far as the goal is. Okay. Concerned. So, so possibly for art. So then kind of for art museums, as opposed to, to try to get a job in film. Yeah. That was maybe not the goal. In fact, she was like kind of anti Hollywood um, and kind of a, outspoken about it. She thought that Hollywood was lame. Oh, interesting. I want to read more of her reasons for that. That's super cool. All right, let's jump into the mailbag and then wrap up the episode. So let's go. Got a couple of things from the mailbag that I wanted to bring to you guys' attention today. First up was a letter from Steve. Um, who uh, says this, just listen to your latest episode on Terminator 2, and there is a story about one of the stunts that might interest you and tell you a little bit more about James Cameron as a filmmaker. So th- we talked a lot about the stunts when we were talking about this movie, um, uh, and you guys, I'm sure, know the story, but I did not. So um, I will share it with everybody at home. Uh, Steve continues, during the end chase sequence with the helicopter, there's a shot where the helicopter flies under <laughs> a freeway <laughs> overpass and then quickly fly- flies over the next overpass, and the shot was done was not done with models or miniatures or CGI or any other trickery. It's an actual helicopter flying an under an actual 
LA freeway overpass. The pilot's name, uh, who we're going to give a um, uh, employee of the month to, the pilot's name was Charles uh, Tamburo, a veteran pilot with a long resume of film credits. And after Cameron suggested the stunt, Tamburo measured the clearance and decided he physically could do it, knowing if he made a mistake of just a few feet, he would likely be killed. In order to film the stunt, they needed a chase car with a camera in it to drive close to the helicopter, but because of the danger, the camera crew refused to participate. So Cameron himself decided he would film it. Uh, that shot was done by James Cameron operating the camera closely following behind in the chase car. Nowadays, that shot would never happen uh, for good reason. It would not be attempted for good reason. But mm-hmm. I think the story illustrates a lot about the practical stunt team on T2 and about Cameron, Cameron himself. And that makes is such an interesting story to me because we were sort of dancing around this at the end, which is like, I love stunt performers and I love genuine great stunt performance. But also, I feel strongly that doing uh doing things that are endangering the performers mm-hmm. is immoral and so i have those two things in my head like performances that's what they want to do like yeah yeah i mean everyone that, in well, I, filming... no, I still think i still think it's immoral so like i guess I, this comes if, from like I, I from like the like i'm really interested like really love circus and i really love and magic and i feel like uh, this is the thing like Penn Teller said a while ago that really stuck with me, which is like, if you're doing a magic trick that could actually get you killed, it's immoral, even if you like that, because you're putting the audience in the position of being party to and witness and in- encouragement to mm-hmm. you're taking your own life. And that is unfair and immoral. I mean, do you think the movie Free Solo is immoral? Oh man, I have su- man, and I I met that guy. He was on he was on a radio show that I was working for at the time, and super nice dude. And I the movie's incredible, and I I man, I I feel like the one difference with Free Solo is that he does not give a fuck if we're watching. That guy could not care less about the rest of us. He's doing something that will get him killed uh, eventually for his own pleasure, and that's different than if you're doing it to make a product for me to enjoy. Like this helicopter pilot wasn't just like doing fun helicopter stunts mm-hmm. that might kill him. He was doing it for a movie for people to watch. And so he's making us a party to his danger. But, I mean, I would argue also that's literally you can't say you respect stunt men and then in the next breath essentially say all stunt men are immoral. Immoral, yeah. No. <laughs> it's kind of a any weird stunt dance. Is could injure someone. Literally any that's why they are paid. To be stunt people. Well, okay, but I'm not. I mean, uh, you're you're being unfair to the point. Obviously, I don't mean that because there's like walking down the street. There's a million things that could hurt you. But I think within the realm of risk, this seems high, and that this seems immorally high. Whereas most other stunt work doesn't. And so I think I love stunt work up to that line. Tom Cruise doing halo jumps, or you know, actually learning, like, flying, Tom Cruise flying a helicopter solo, doing crazy stunts in the last Mission Impossible movie. Is that immoral? I mean, like, I think he's... I I think, I mean, I don't know the difference, the difficulties in each of those stunts, and, like, um, certainly things that can hurt yourself uh, are different from things that can kill you, Um, but... I don't know. I don't know. It's hard for me to figure out. But like, I mean, you guys are you're 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 reacting strongly, Anthony, as if I'm crazy for this. But like, it is like weird, right? For a movie for me to involve stunts that are that killable. I mean, any helicopter has like a one in five chance of crashing. They're so mm-hmm. dangerous. The idea of flying it in that situation just seems like like reckless. And certainly, you would, I, I assume you would agree that reckless stunts are not good. 
Well, I mean, the thing is, though, I would argue that these are professionals who, like, it, they seem reckless, but I I was watching uh, Mask of Zorro recently, which is a great movie and has some insane horse stunts in it. Stuff that could absolutely, if this whole performer messed up at all, would have died or been mm-hmm. tragically injured, right? But he's mm-hmm. a professional who spends his life doing this, was obviously like not coerced into doing this on set that day. Or you look at, so I just think that it, there's a difference between like, I think if you're tricking people into doing something like this, or pressuring them into doing something like this, I think that was immoral. But it was uh, but, like- that, but you're that. I mean, that's acting like humans are good at assessing risk for their own, on on their own, which they're not. Like people do dangerous jobs that could kill them all the time, and it's not that they're being pressured; it's that they're being offered money and someone else suggested it. So if you're if you are a person making a movie and you're like, man, it'd be cool if a helicopter went under here, you didn't coerce this person into doing it, but you offered to pay someone to do something you knew had a had a high rate but- of. I murder mean, at that, that point still seems weird right and no because at that point why not just get rid of all helicopter stunts which there are you know that i watched the uh, tomorrow never dies the james bond movie in which they jump a motorcycle over a helicopter that's really dangerous that could have absolutely yeah. meant like it's just well i i, I would say like, so was, i mean it's funny you even without saying stunts like i do think probably people riding motorcycles and driving helicopters are both not worth the risk uh so the idea of doing them in more dangerous ways is pretty intense i think i think it's the confidence that kind of that that makes this conversation difficult it's because I would say I'm probably I'm just unsure. Like I do not yeah. know exactly how moral or immoral any of these any of these actions are that we're talking about. Because a lot of it has to do with like where you're going to draw some sort of imaginary line. Um, and, well, that, I mean that was, was that was exactly what my my question was, as opposed to making a strong point. Was I know I I know for a fact that there are some stunts that seem that I think are fine, and I know that there are some stunts that are immoral. And I I'm not watching snuff movies, and mm-hmm. it feels like so. I think we can agree there's a line, and this is one where I'm like that is kind of cool, and also feels on the wrong side of the line to me. But I am I I think we all would agree that there is a line, and so yeah. I'm just interested in like where we find that and how we decide that yeah uh and i think that is why this is difficult to talk about because i have no way to approach that question i have no tools that would help in evaluating whether this guy doing some sick ass like helicopter under like i want to believe that it was fine for him to do that because we now get to live in the world where he did that. And that's so fucking awesome that he did that and achieved that. Like that is, that is also valid. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't know if like I, if I was the guy to have to make the call for the next guy to do the sick ass helicopter stunt, I don't know. Right. I don't know how you evaluate that. Like I, people, so like I think Freestyle is such a great example, which is like, um, dude snuck off in the middle of the night and did this thing that everyone agrees probably you shouldn't do because um, it's super. It's probably too dangerous to do, and he just did it. And there happened to be a camera crew around, but he did not care about the movie. He just did a thing for himself. That's different from having like, oh, I'm going to start a crab fishing operation. And sure, a third of my employees will die on my boat, but they're all taking that choice freely. Like we would think that's weird. Yeah, fuck that. But that's but that's the thing, though, is the that 
it's not the same type of exploit exploitation as far as like the actual work that we're talking about. Like this is someone there's a difference between someone dying as a fisherman and they were they were just trying to do for money and someone who is like a stunt artist that died trying to do one of the coolest things anyone's ever done <laughs> like is there like i just i guess what i mean is yeah, like yeah. i feel like there's a value in that difference mm-hmm. um for mm-hmm. sure i mean i i i do like i think this is a very interesting conversation i think that if you want to go down a crazy rabbit hole of things James Cameron has done or had people do on sets, uh, almost every one of his movies has something. I am going to just tell, I mean, if you re- that's just like a really good example of James Cameron's character. But if you want the ultimate example of James Cameron's character, uh, a few weeks in the filming Titanic, an angry crew member, uh, spiked the drinking water with uh, like acid or PCP. I forget exactly which one it was. Oh, God. A bunch of people got really sick and started hallucinating and freaked that freaking out. Uh, James Cameron went and made himself vomit and then worked for like a 12-hour day afterwards. <laughs> uh, if you want to know what kind of guy James Cameron is, he got dosed. Well, yeah, so that's, that's then- the part of this I like, which is like I do think that it's important on your if you're the boss of the boat that you make sure your employees are not putting themselves in danger even if because people are bad at assessing their own risk even if they're willing to take dangers you say no this is a this is going to be a nobody dies kind of work environment and in this case his stunt people said no it's too it's too dangerous don't do it and he said fine i'll do it myself and that feels okay mostly to me that seems like yeah james cameron was not doing this because he was coerced into it he took the danger on himself to not risk someone else's life which feels good um whereas like especially compared to like the quentin tarantino story still, we talked about oh well, yeah where sure. the stunt people were like this is too dangerous and he was like shut up and drive this car oh yeah that's not even on the table as far as like right. how questionable is that no 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 that's that's shitty that's in the that's in the shitty column we don't even need to, need to discuss that as far as but, it's, whether it but could be or could well be. but i we're just so this is what i'm saying we, we know where the we know a line Here, exists yeah, i know so i know exactly. no one's saying examples. there isn't a line um but what i what i'm trying to say is I felt like the point that Penn and Teller were making is even James Cameron and the helicopter guy agreeing to do that. That was immoral. And then now it is well, immoral for it because they made us party to. I think it's different. So one of the, so I, I mentioned the origin of this being um, Penn and Teller because they're, I think it's relevant that they're in a different art form. It's for some, it's different when it's a movie versus a stage show. Cause I think making people risking the chance that people will watch you die on stage is way worse than. I agree that it's worse, but it's not altogether different. It's, it's definitely worse, but it's, they're yeah, I mean, I do, I do think that for a production company of any movie to allow a stunt that could kill the person, I, I think they're like, I mean, it's cool that this didn't happen. But if we're telling the story about a helicopter crash that killed somebody, I would be really mad at James Cameron for allowing it to happen. I, mean, I don't think that that's incredibly fair either, because even on like very simple stunts, people die or get injured on them. Right. And then there's like. We still, we still think that there's, there's a, a safety expert and we take their opinion. So yeah. people die doing things that aren't stunts. No, the point it's, is, it's like, look, a great example of this is like the ultimate example of this is John, La- John Landis on the Twilight Zone movie, right? Mm-hmm. Completely fucked up, was horribly irresponsible, killed Vic Murrow and two children actors and a helicopter pilot. 
right? Fuck. Uh, what? Horrifying accident. Uh, and that was like, he wasn't supposed to have kids on the set that late at night. He snuck them on anyway. The pilot said, I am uncomfortable being this close to these explosions. He told him to get closer anyway. Uh, mm. He had thing after thing after thing. Like that is like an absolutely immoral, unjustifiable accident mm-hmm. that is completely tragic mm-hmm. and did not need to happen. I think that there's also at the other end of this, there's stuff like what, especially if you watch like interviews with Tom Cruise, I think it's a really fascinating uh, subject in this kind of stuff. Cause if you look at Tom Cruise, I don't know him, but he seems like a pretty intense guy. Mm-hmm. A guy who really <laughs> likes to dot his eyes and cross his T's. And sure, he does yeah. wild, insane stunts, especially on the last few Mission Impossible movies. But if you see interviews with him or have anyone talk about working with him, there is a professionalism and a dotting everything, making sure everything is perfect. We're going to do something incredibly dangerous, and I don't want any of you not being on the ball, not paying fucking attention. No one is going to get hurt here. Someone's going to get hurt. It's going to be me, and I'm going to break my ankle. Right? I like that. And I that sounds that, like stunt work to me. That's what I'm into. Yes, and I'm saying like that is I think that can get as dangerous as the professionals are going to make sure there are safety nets in place. And like look, even Tom Cruise occasionally breaks his femur doing one of these stunts, mm-hmm. you know? Uh but I think that there is a certain I, level of precaution that makes so it So I think that's exactly what I'm looking for and especially cuz I was saying like I like circus and one thing I like in circus is the intense safety ethos around this because you're doing stuff that's so dangerous and people get hurt doing it all the time but they have uh, a series of precautions and and, me- and and systems for being safe and if somebody gets hurt being unsafe in not paying attention to those that's when i get more upset um we should wrap this up but i do want to just say really quick that tom cruise my theory is is trying to kill himself to get out of oh, yeah, scientology he, he has a death anyway, for sure um thank you i'm sure that's not where you're expecting this to go steve but i do appreciate it steve actually added one more um fun uh practical effect from the movie uh which is whenever there are two sarah connors on screen as in the dream sequence that's Linda, Linda Hamilton's twin sister, Leslie. Yeah. Um, and I have I have said for a long time that I also believe it is immoral to exploit the similarities between you and your twin. I yeah, think. Didn't, didn't they also have the other twins for that other guy? The uh, cop? Yeah, the security yeah, guard? The yeah, cop. him and his that, twin. That's also a twin, twin shot. I love twin stuff. I think that's so funny and so cool. Um, I, loving twins. Yeah. Gross, Alex. Stop talking about I love your twin special effect. No, actually, my favorite thing in the world is when twins convince you they're the other person. And so that's like this to the movie degree. All right, one last email to read. Um, this is from Caitlin. Uh, uh, and the subject is insurance nurses. So I'm a little bit late weighing in on the <laughs> rear window episode. <laughs> But I wanted to send some feedback regarding the issue of insurance nurses that is definitely still a thing today. I've had a lot of surgeries and hospitalizations the last few years, and after each one, my insurance has approved some home health nurse to come to my house for as long as I'm homebound. Although I have never once received a massage from these nurses, they mainly just change IVs, dress, IV dressings and do, do blood work and make sure I'm not screwing up the medication that they show me how to administer. So thanks. I've been really enjoying Slightly Condescending Film School. Caitlin. Um, I really do appreciate the input there, and I hope you are recovering well from your numerous yeah. surgeries. 
Um, I just, I completely, it took my brain a minute to be like, when did we talk about insurance nurses? (laughs) (laughs) Why would we talk about insurance nurses? I just started rattling off everything. I was like, oh yeah, rear window. That's what the last was about. But that that really tickled me. I like it. It was fun. Well, and I I, I do, I guess the, the difference is, I feel like if you said a home health nurse, I know what that is. And the idea that it's a person who is, that sounds like a person who works in nursing, and the insurance is paying for it. The insurance nurse in this sounded like she worked for the insurance company, which seemed like a weird separation. But I, anyway, this does sol- it solves the mystery of where they went. They just changed job titles and they stopped massaging you for no reason. Uh, thank you so much for the email, Caitlin and Steve. Uh, please keep them coming. Uh, podcast at read-weep.com. We would love to hear from you. And I, uh, I can't wait to take your email too seriously and talk for, talk about it for too long. <laughs> <laughs> That is it for our show, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back again next week with another great episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is because we haven't told Anthony and Hunter yet, but I have a plan for it. And we're going to discuss it off the air. It's going to be really good. Um, Actually, I will just say right now, I'll let you guys all know that next week is midterms. So it's time to figure out what it's not just this little quiz today. We're going to figure out what I have learned from this season. uh, The first half of slightly condescending film school, the half about. So it's midterms next week. So study up on all the movies you watched thus far. Also, please be sure to check out um, our bonus episode coming out in a couple days. Um, If you're interested in video games, it turns out Hunter and Anthony don't just know more than me about movies. They also know way more than me about video games. So we're going to have an episode of our new mini series, slightly condescending video game school about Final Fantasy VII, uh, the remake. So that's coming out in a couple days. And also we'll have some more streaming adventures on Twitch, um, which you can find us uh, when I was in our joint project with Hunter's show, Space Cats Peace Turtles. So you can find us on Twitch, twitch.com slash Space Cats Peace Turtles. And we'll be doing some more slightly condescending video game school there. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Anthony. It's always great to talk this, to you. This is a good, long episode. I liked it. I know. We were talking beforehand where it was like, it's a 13-minute show, sir, so movie, <laughs> so surely we'll keep it tight. I didn't. Um, I'm glad you stuck around. Thanks for joining. And thanks for hanging out with me, Hunter. Of course. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Follow me on Letterboxd, please. Yeah, find Hunter on Letterboxd. Um, uh, we will put that in the show notes. We have a bunch of links in the show notes today, too, so check that out. Read We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Psh. Bye.